Can you hear me? Yes? No? Well, let's see. Yeah, you can. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back here with you. After a time away, last week I was at Fort Miller Church. That was my last Sunday there after about a year of being there. And um, I have had a, it was a great time. It was my pleasure to be a part of that uh, service I could give to them. But it was time to end it, felt that it was time to... uh, Bring it to a close. And so this week uh, I found out that uh, Boston Center's pastor is leaving. So they asked me to fill in in December. <laughs> so I'll be on December 20th. I'll fill there just for the hopefully or whatever for the one Sunday in the 20th of December because Jason is taking a church in, a PCA church in South Carolina. And it's been a busy week. I've been traveling the last couple weeks in Minnesota and this past week in Denver. And um, so it's good to, I haven't been used to flying for a while. And um, so it's, it's great to be back home and be back here again with you all. So let's, let me uh, tell you that now you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. It's 9.43 in your, in your uh, the Pew Bible. And I would encourage you highly, as I've done in the past, to open up your Bible and look at this because um, it is very important. These... Chapters 5 through 8 are, to me, the most important uh, chapters in the Bible. Uh, This is the crux of our faith, what we confess, what we believe, what we're supposed to be believing. These are are the verses and the passages that really give us a reason to live for the Lord, give us a reason to be thankful, uh, give us a reason to be encouraged. So I would highly recommend that we open up the books, uh, your Bibles up today, and also next week read again chapter 6. This week we're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 23. Actually, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18. But let me read, uh, let me pray, and then I'll read uh, chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. Heavenly Father, I ask your kindness and mercy to your servant as we, as I read, as we hear, as we pray for your spirit to come and to work in us, that your word would have its way with us, that it would be planting, it would be watering, it would be cultivating, it would be bringing life, it would be bearing fruit all that you desire it to have, Lord, we pray that you would do that now within us. Because, Lord, this is the very words of life you, these are the very words of life you've given to us. And um, these are so important to 
the foundation of our belief, of our hope, and a reason for us to live for your glory and honor. And so, Lord, we pray that we would read them accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, were, you, you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness." But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's been a while uh, since we've looked at chapter 6 and uh, the previous chapter, chapter 5, leading up to that. As you can see, this chapter 6, verse 15, asks a question. And again, Paul uh, anticipates these questions, has already heard these questions before, but presents them because he understands the human condition, understands the mind, and he says, this question is certainly a logical question that's going to come from what I'm talking about. And you can see in chapter 6, verse 1, is the same kind of question. What then shall we, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul responds emotionally by saying, God forbid, by no means. How criminal for you to even think this if you understand what the gospel is all about. How perverse can you even think that because now you are free from from the law, that now you can live your life any way that you want to. And so Paul goes on and talks about this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 the, the, main, the main theme there is our union with Christ. Because in this book, 32 times, the, um, Paul uses this prepositional phrase, with. So he talks about dying with Christ and being crucified with Christ and being buried with Christ and being raised with Christ and coming to life with Christ and seated with Christ and in the heavenly realms in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And then throughout all of his writing, 131 times, 
he uses the phrase, in Christ. And you can see that here in verse 11. So that you must all consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And then verse 23, God is the gift of God in eternal life of eternal is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter 8, verse 39 is nor depth, nor height, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us above from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about this union that we have with Christ. We're in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, who was my professor, and, and uh, as I've mentioned several times, he, he translates this, this Greek in, uh, preposition, and he actually says it's not only in, but it's into. It's, it's a new location. It's a, it's a new place. It's a place that we enter into that we never had any right to be in before, and never did we ever think once we get there that we would be there. And so Paul is, is concerned about this and wants them to know that this is the foundation of our faith. And he says, this is who you are. He's telling them, as, as you've heard uh, talk about in a grammatical perspective, the present tense, the, the, the um, historical fact that you are in Christ because of your faith. And he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know? He's appealing. He says this again, as we've read in verse 16. Do you not know? He's appealing, saying, this is something that you should know. Now, remember, Paul has never been to Rome. He's never met these people, but he knows a lot of them, as we can see in chapter 16. But he's never taught there. So he wants to make sure that he doesn't say, are you stupid? He doesn't want to say, didn't you get it? He just wants, do you not know, as an appeal of saying, this is something you should because this is great news. Do you not know? Have you not seen, Paul sucks, what God has in store for those who love him? How great the, the, the love of God is lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Do you know who you are? John writes through and through. You know this. Paul does the same thing. He writes in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. One commentator writes this, This is a description of the participation of the believer in Christ's very own baptism. A participation that is mediated by his baptism. It is not that the believer in baptism is laid in his own grave, but that through that action of baptism, he is set alongside Jesus in his I think that's remarkable that we are set next to Christ in his death, his burial. This is, this is the advantage. This is the privilege. This is the blessing that Jesus gives to us that no one else can ever give to us. That it says you are, we are dead to sin. Now we realize that we have not, we are, sin has not dead to us. 
We've, we've, we've marked about that before. But that he says that it, with union with Christ, the reason it can happen is one, as Pastor Nate talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, something that's mind-boggling boggling, is that God chose us, elected us, called us out before the, the, the creation of anything else and made us his and called us to be his children and predestined us to be his brother and sister. That's why we, this is the foundational act. God called us. Jesus, they chose us from before anything else ever existed. This was God's plan for those who are in Christ. And then Philippians 2 tells us that it was by the very nature of Christ, his obedient uh, to, the, to death, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form of a slave, taking on the body of, sinful, of the sinful flesh, taking upon himself, and became obedient to death upon a cross. He chose us, and then he came down to be us so that he could be with us, communicate with us, live for us, die for us. And then by Romans 1.17 and Ephesians 2, it's the righteousness of God. Romans 1.17 talks about the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. It is because God has given you and me faith. Ephesians 2, it's not your own. It's not something you've generated. It's not something you've thought of. It's a gift of God, this faith. So because he chose us, because he died for us, and became flesh for us so that he would take on the very wrath of God that we all deserve, chapters 1 through 3. We now, we now can be people of the living God. We can now say that we are dead to sin. And we can say now that sin is still very prevalent in our life. Sin has still... Has still uh, power over our life. Uh, with uh, this book I've, I've just got, I've really been buying a lot more books in, in the, in the uh, Puritans. Uh, they just, they're just so good, and they're rewriting some of them. And Court John Owen, if I was talking about before, he's written a book about mortification of sin, and he is talking about killing sin. And I think Nate's had it in, in the, in the uh, bulletin. You know, you better be killing sin because if you don't, sin will kill you. And, and he's written a book called Indwelling Sin in Believers. And he writes this, he says, he said, let us never reckon that our work in fighting against sin, in crucifying, mortifying, and subduing it, is at an end. The place of habitation is unsearchable. We may think that we have thoroughly won the field, but there is still some remaining reserve remaining that we did not know or see. Many conquerors have been ruined by carelessness of a victory, and many have been spiritually wounded after great successes. David's great fall into sin followed a long profession, many experiences of God, a watchfulness of keeping himself from his iniquity. And this is a part of the reason why the profession of many has declined in their old age or riper years. They have given up on the work of mortifying sin before the work was finished." There is no other way to pursue sin in its unsearchable habitation than being endless in our pursuit. It, has, it, it, it is as necessary to watch 
toward the end of the race as at the beginning. Always be doing it while you live in this world. If we give up, we shall quickly see the enemy exerting itself with new strength and vigor. This might happen while we are under some great affliction or in some eminent enjoyment of God or while in the sense of sweetness of the blessed communion with Christ. We may think sin was at an end, that it was dead and gone forever. But, we, but have we not found the contrary by experience? It had only retired in some unsearchable recess of our hearts, weakened though it may be, might be. Let us then reckon and consider that there is no way to have our work done but by being always engaged in it. And he who does fighting in this warfare dies assuredly a conqueror. We have this union with Christ. We are dead to sin. And remember, we are now in Christ. We, have, we first were in Adam. Remember chapter 5 says, you were with the, we were with the first man. You were with Adam. But the second, or the, the last one, excuse me, the second one is Christ. We don't live in this pattern anymore. We can't live under the principle of what, how we live and what we think without Christ. This pattern of living, this philosophy, the way that we look at the worldview, does not, does not, it works here. But if we are in Christ, it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. It is not something that we can continue to keep on doing. Because this is in Adam and this is in Christ. This is death and this is life. That's what Paul is writing about. And since we have been changed and trans transformed into now Christ, and we are dead to sin, we no longer need to live or can we live as if we were living here. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fit our new name. When we're Christians, when we're baptized, it's a naming ceremony. We've been put the name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are given a new name. We are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. We have the name of Christ. And we proudly and gladly proclaim that name. So we need to live up to that. But being dead to sin, alive to sin over here and dead to sin over here, as I've said and Owen says so marvelously, it's a battle. It's a weapon. It's a war. It's warfare. So he doesn't want them to realize and to fall asleep and want them to be so, you know, so uh, content that they're in Christ that they don't need to worry about anything anymore, that, that just because they've been forgiven their sins, and that's why he says it can't happen. It just can't be. You just can't ask that question, should I go on sinning? Can I keep on sinning now that I want in Christ? Grace will just show more how much Christ keeps on forgiving me. It says it just, it's insanity. So we see in, 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 in this verse, in these verses, 1 through 11, Actually, it's 1 through 14, but 1 through 11, it's the union with Christ. And then he summarizes in verses 12, 13, and 14 what he's already said. So 12, 13, 14 are a summary of where he's come from. He says, let not sin therefore reign. That's an imperative. It's a command. Do not let sin reign, 
Notice what it says here. In your body, right? We looked at the last time we hear through different passages that he's talking about our bodies. Do not let sin reign, be in control, be your king, be your master, because over here, that's, that's how we operate. We operate in that way, because sin is reigning. Sin is our king. Sin is our master. We have consciousness because God's given it to us. He's written his law in our hearts. So we have a consciousness, and sometimes we do realize, wow, that's not really a cool thing to do. That's pretty stupid because that could happen to me, or this could happen to me, or I could get in trouble for doing this. So I better do it in the dark. I may do it at night. I may do it someplace where nobody sees me, so nobody catches me. I don't have a conscience. I just do it until somebody catches me. But notice what it says in that verse 12. It says, Do not let sin therefore reign in your body to make you obey its passions. And that's what life is in Adam, in fallen humanity. We are subject to the passions of our bodies. God has given us passions and desires, and they're good passions and desires. But when you add an adjective called sinful passions and desires, it changes the entire picture. And that's what it's saying here. Do not, make, do not let your body make you obey its desires. So I ask you, what is your desire? What is my desire? What do we desire in life? In here, it's just being me. It's just living my life. It's finding out this day what works. And next day, this works. And 10 years down the road, this may work. And this, the, the, I, oh, I'll scratch my itch this way. It feels good. Whatever gets me through the night, that feels good. But over here, that can't be. In Christ, that is not the way because our desire now is to do whatever we do in thought, word, and deed. We do it for the glory of God. That's what we desire now. And if you don't have that desire, then you better talk to us. Because that's a problem. That should be your desire. Your desire should be, how can I glorify God with my life based upon everything he's done for me, that he's died for me? It's not that he's giving you a diet so you lose weight. It's not telling you how much money you can make. It's not telling you how many friends you can have. It's not telling you and guaranteeing you a perfect marriage, perfect kids. It's not doing any of that. People tell you that, but that's not your testimony. Your testimony is that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And the wrath of God was beaming upon top of you. But in Christ, a revel from the revelation from heaven, a righteousness from heaven, from God came, and his name is Jesus. Here is complete unrighteousness. Over here is perfect righteousness. That's our desire. And again, we're all honest. We know that's our desire. And we don't always do that. But the... But the Perfect righteousness is in Christ, and he's the one who lived life perfectly. So when God looks upon us, as Nate just talked about being justified, God looks upon us as if we've never done anything wrong. We've been transported in this life 
over to this life. And when Jesus looks upon us, he sees being covered with the righteousness of Christ. That's the difference of the two worlds. That's why you're saying, how can you say, should I go on sinning? When it, it cannot be. We should abhor sin. We should find what God hates, we should hate. But the problem is that sin is still very much within our bodies. And that's where Paul writes. Paul writes, he says, uh, <clears throat> he says uh, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 27, he says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one, those one, that one beating in the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after I preach, I myself be disqualified. That's what Paul is talking about here when he is saying, do not let this reign. He says, you don't have to. Right? He says in verse 13, he says, instead of letting it rain, he goes, now do not present, do not offer the members of your body, your mind, your heart, your will, your, your thoughts, your mouth. Do not let any of the members of your body sin as instruments of unrighteousness. It's warfare. That's really what it is. That's what he was talking about. And uh, Owens was talking about. It's weapons of, of unrighteousness. But he says, instead of negatively do not present, he says, now in this world, this life in Christ, we present ourselves to God. And what else do we do? We present, it says here, present your members to God as instruments. So here we now, we, we present ourselves to God as servants, as slaves. And we also, what do we do? We also present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness, which was not possible over here because that was never anything we wanted to do we never cared about god even though if you go down the street and i've heard me say this before and you go down the street and you're having coffee with somebody or you meet somebody at the door why do you hate god now i don't hate god why do you say that why do you think i hate god over here we have we may never think that we we hate god that we do anything wrong we know that we're not perfect, but we know that there are people better, worse than us, so that's how we live our lives. Over here, Jesus is the example. Jesus is the one that we look at. Jesus is the model of our life. And he says here, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. It's a promise. This is a promise from God. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Over here, you're under law. Over here, you don't know. You ask somebody, how are you going to, do you, when you die, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to heaven. How do you know I'm going to heaven? Because I've been a good person. I've tried to be good. I've gone to church. We've gone to Sunday school. We've gone to Bible studies. We've gone, we're, we're members of the church. We're, we're, we're good. We, I, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I, I try to do the best I can. And he says here, he says, that's, that's not how a person under grace thinks. A person under grace realizes, I can't do anything. 
I don't even have faith. I deserve wrath. I deserve God's hatred. I deserve deserve to go to hell. I deserve not to have any love from God whatsoever. Over here, why not? Over here, why do I get any? That's the difference. That's where Paul is summarizing what's going on here. But he says this, notice, it's not choices. It's one or the other. There's There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. There's only two choices that can happen here. And he says, because there are only, as as Jesus says, right? He says, there's only sin or obedience. And that's what he starts talking about in chapter 15 through 23. Now, this section, as we're looking at today in only these verses, we're talking now, we are going from slaves to unrighteousness over here to slaves of obedience here. We are now freed from here to be slaves here, but willing slaves, bond servants, those who long to hear their master's voice, who longs to not leave the home that God has brought us into. It's like Exodus chapter 21, I believe, where, you, where the slave who was, a bond, who was a servant and had to serve his time because he may have sold himself into this servanthood because he needed the money, so he worked for this household, and yet it's always been a strange concept to me that this, he loved this master so much that he said, I don't want to leave you. I want to serve you. I don't ever want to leave your home. You've treated me nicely. You've loved me. You've loved my family. You love everything about us. I don't want to leave. I want to be under your home. I want to be under your leadership. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. So what do they do? You go to the doorpost. He gets an awe and pierces his ear to show that I desire to be a part of this house. I desire to be under the leadership and the lordship of this home, of this man, and I long to obey what he has to say. That's what's happening here. A willing desire to be a slave. We're willing slavery. We want to be serving Christ, but it's not oppressive. It's not abusive because we, it's God. It's Christ there is, no, there is nothing that we ever have to fear in what this master says to us. But there's only two choices. Slavery to unrighteousness or slavery to obedience. Jesus says in chapter 6 of Matthew, you can't ter- serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other or hate the other and... You just aren't going, to be able, you aren't going to be able to do that. You're going to hate them or love them, whatever is going to happen here. And he says in chapter 7 of, of the, on the Sermon on the Mount, there's only two gates. And he says also in chapter 7, of, verses 17, there's only two types of trees. And then he says in chapter 7 of the, on the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, there's two kinds of builders. Paul points this out to us. In verses 15 through 18, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. You can't serve two masters. What does Paul write to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and and make my members, uh, members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, united with Christ. So we can't live in both worlds. We can't want to live in both worlds, though we do at times. God knows that. Over here, that sinful nature is still there. And that's where Owen tells us, and that's where it tells us in the Bible to mortify, crucify, kill the flesh, try to keep it down. But realize, as I loved what he said here, David at these great moments of his life, great moments of worshiping God and great benefits and great blessing in his life, he sees Bathsheba. And he sees the fruit on the tree, and it looks good. And I'm sure it tastes good. So he's tempted, and in his, his glorious being, name of being the son of, I mean, being the, uh, a man after God's own heart, we see this man who, has, who commits adultery and ends up killing this woman's, uh, Bathsheba's husband. David thought it was great. He thought he was really getting it. He thought that he was in the groove. He thought that between me and God, there's no space whatsoever. And in a moment's notice, folks, doesn't it happen to you? It happens to me. Before you blink, you think something. You say something. You do something. You don't even premeditate it. It happens. And then sometimes... You think about it, and then it it, it really starts finding a home. God allows that to take place in our lives. So that what? So that we will remember where we came from and remember that, boy, I thought I had killed that idol a long time ago. But all Satan had to do was blow on it, and it smelled good again. Do you not, as Second Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is where he is saying it just can't be. You just can't ever think of that question about could I, should I keep on sinning? He says, do you not know that if you present, offer as a sacrifice, offer your lives to anyone who is obedient, then you are slaves to the one whom you obey. And hopefully we are showing the world by being here today, by the way we live our lives, that we're not perfect, but we obey a master that is like no other master that we will ever know. He says, you're going to, we're going to, the world will find out who you obey the most, what your life looks like. The one you serve is the one that you obey. 
And the one that is your God, that's what he is talking about here. And so he says, but, notice this change, but thanks be to God, something has to happen. A change has to happen. And the only way that change is a change of one's heart. And it says here, he, uh, the scriptures say to us, <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and from 1 John chapter 1. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, the one, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What has to happen? He says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once, this is past tense, he talks about something that's already happened. Why? Because if you've accepted Christ, this is a done deal. As he says here, the promise of chapter, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. He proclaims it as if it's a done deal. Even though we are going to struggle with sin, he looks upon us knowing that we will never lose our salvation. We will never leave the God that we love. We may be prone to wander, but we will never leave the God that we love. Because why? Because God has chosen us. God has called us. He has given us both the will and the ability to call out his name and to do what he wants us to do, even though we look like we're fumbling all over the place at times. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become now not righteousness, but obedient, he says. You have become obedient from the heart. It's the taking over the entire person here. It's every component of who, who you are and who I am. Every faculty that we have. He says, therefore, Paul writes, make sure that you, that you work out that salvation in your life. What does that mean that you, that as you've heard me say, it's like, you know, a, a pizza dough on that pizza dish and you just put it in and you push it to every corner of that dish to fill that entire dish out. And this is what we do. It's Christ. We pray that Christ gives us a desire and we push out his love, his mercy, his salvation to every part of our life so that the best that we can do is is to push out this, this uh, blessing of God so that we will not sin against him. And that every part of our being, there will be no nook or cranny. But you and I know that we have nooks and crannies in our being. We know that we think we've spread it all out, but we realize that there is a trap door somewhere. Or there's a door that we thought that we had no problem with, but it was really full of all kinds of parasites and all kinds of ugly things going on there. And then God will open that up for us someday. Well, not going to be perfect, not here, but when the Lord returns. But here, it's an ongoing revelation of understanding who we are as we examine ourselves under the light of Scripture. So, he says, Jesus says to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
The problem is, is that what Paul's telling them is that they had no idea. There are people who are enslaved to sin, had no idea. They may look like Christians, they may act like Christians, but they're not because they do not know that they're obedient to the evil one. They're obedient to sin. Sin is reigning in their life. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you will seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. When people do not have a love for God's word, when they do not care about the church, remember, sounds familiar from 1 John, the tests? Do you know who Jesus is? Is Jesus the Lord and Savior? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the only hope? Yes. Well, then here's another test. Do you, do you love God's word? Do you hide it in your heart? We know you're not perfect, but do you hide it in your heart? John says, people who love God, who love Christ, don't go on practicing, right? That, that going back over and over again and doing the same things over and over again without having, having some sense of shame and guilt and realizing this is not what I should be doing. I shouldn't be looking like this. Or belong to the family of God, which is a third test, and saying we love the people of God. We love the church. We need to belong to the church. We need to be connected to the body of believers because it depends on my sanctification. When we, when we set our authority over the word of God and not give the word of God authority over our life, that's where we screw up. You and me, we all get screwed up. We get turned upside down. Jesus says in chapter 17, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, and which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things that I speak, that they may have joy, that, that uh, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them my word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Colossians, Paul writes, and so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, filling, filling, uh, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for endurance and patience, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to shared in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have found redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then finally, he says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have, now, have become obedient from the heart to the standard or pattern or uh, model or type or mold 
of teaching that you were handed over to. This is all passive. Someone's done this for us. As it says in verse 17, having been set free from sin, we didn't do that. But Christ in us has done that. We've been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is key, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Last thing. This reminds me of the word pattern or the word type or the word mold. The, the, uh, as I, I don't know if you guys uh, ever been in a print shop, but years ago, my, you know, my father had a print shop, and I learned how to set type, right? And I learned how to read backwards. So if you, you know, if you're, I can read people's newspapers. Sometimes I can read backwards. I can read upside. I can read it because you had to set the letters going backwards to print. And those were type. And what they did, right? You put ink on them, and they made a, they made a letter. The type wasn't the letter, but the type made the shape of the letter. It was a mold. It was a pattern. When you've got a typewriter, you strike a key. The key wasn't the type, but it put that letter on the paper. And that's what a type is. It's a mold. It's a pattern. Think of anything about the word mold in any of your translations of what you're, you're thinking of, what Jesus, what uh, Paul says to, as we're going, we read in, in Paul's writings. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And when we're here with Adam, we don't know what's happening in our life. We have no idea that the world is squeezing us into its godless, wicked mold and pattern. Over here, what do we ask? Yes, Jesus, squeeze me into your mold. That's the difference. Squeeze me into your pattern. That's what the teaching he is talking about here. Don't let the world squeeze you, but ask God to squeeze you into the pattern of Christ. This sound doctrine, this sound teaching. Paul writes, and we thank God constantly for this, that when we received the, the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this is where Paul writes this out to them and saying, Does, have, have you been convinced? Do you understand how ridiculous of a question it is to ask or to even think that should, because we're under grace, that we can go around and live any way we want to and God's just going to love us because of Christ? You and I still live that way at times and we are thankful for God's, God's mercy and grace to us. But we ask, the Lord to, we ask the Lord to bend us and shape us and transform us into the likeness of his Son. That's a, that's a life-transforming prayer that we have. And it was not something we were born with. It's something that God gives us new birth and the Spirit of God to be able to want and desire. Do not obey the sin of the... Don't, don't, don't uh, obey the desires of your body, but obey the desires of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you for your blessing upon us now as we are about to eat and drink. We are about to proclaim in another way through this exercise of 
and demonstration of these ordinances that point to who you are, point to what you have done for us. Baptism, we started this union that we have with you. We have been buried. We have been raised. We have died. Lord, we we thank you for including us in, in that benefit and privilege of being part of the work that you have done for us, Lord. So we are not only realizing that we, it can be in words, it is in, in reality, that's who we are. And so, Lord, now we come to this table, which points to, an, to the gospel again. Another sign to you, Jesus. Another sign of you dying for us and living for us and giving us a community of faith and calling us to examine ourselves and calling us to understand what this means and that we should not take of it lightly because of its import because of the weight of it all. This is not something that saves us, Lord, we know. Even though we may treat it like it does, even though we do it for once a month and we we do it and it's over with, Lord, give us, give us by your Spirit now even a sense of the weight of what this is pointing to. That the shedding of your blood for the salvation and the forgiveness of our sins for taking the wrath that we deserve. By Jesus, you giving your life on a cross, your body broken, but also now by coming to life and sending to us the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, as we share in that bread, we share in a community that would never have happened unless you have died for us. Because now, Jesus, you can be in my house and in my heart, and in the heart of everyone here, and in their homes as well, because you now live within us. And it's because of what happened on that week, and that day, that you died for us and gave your life for us. All of that is here, Lord. How can we run over this and step on it and treat it lightly? So, Lord, bless us with your presence. Bless us. Bless the... the, uh, the bread and the juice, Lord. Bless, these, bless these, these elements to us, Lord, as we eat and drink, knowing that they, that they will not fill our bodies but refresh our souls. That, Lord, the means of grace that we believe they are to us will fill us and fill our hearts and our minds with the love that you've given to us through your Son, Jesus. May this happen, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask the...